What's up, guys? Here's a show I recorded with Mike King of 86Cup and Counterspace Garage while I was at Buttonwillow Raceway Park for Superlap Battle a couple weeks ago. Mike was one of the first people to seriously track the FRS BRZ86 chassis. He was previously involved in the S2000 world, still has his S2000, but it doesn't really see a whole lot of track time anymore, which we discuss. He's known on the forums as Psycho Asian and as CSG Mike. In the show, he talks about uh, potentially having a trans failure issue at Superlap Battle, but I talked to him this weekend at Chuckwalla, and it uh, turns out that wasn't the case. It was some sort of other tuning or fuel issue, so please disregard that. The transmission in their current BRZ is just fine. Also want to let you know that we have some awesome shows coming up over the next week. On Friday, for Black Friday, we'll release a show with uh, Kevin Bohm. Kevin is an STL and STU SCCA driver. He's also done some uh, IMSA stuff as well. Uh, he also tuned the traction control and stability control on the new NSX. So it's going to be a great show. Next Tuesday, we'll have a show out with uh, Dan Howard and Emilio Cervantes from 949 Racing, uh, along with Ryan Passy and Moti from Blackbird Fabworks. So uh, we'll be talking about their experience at Superlab Battle. Those guys uh, did an amazing job. Emilio getting down to a 144.9 in uh, essentially his Super Miata S1 class car with some aero mods and the boost turned up. So very, very fast lap time. I think Ryan also did uh, in the 148s or 147s too. So it's going to be an awesome show. Uh, pretty much a who's who of West Coast um, Miata tuners. So be sure to tune in for that one as well. So that's what we've got. Hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, if you're looking to spend a little bit of extra money on Black Friday, make sure you check out our buddies at OG Racing for any of your racing needs. Helmets, suits, transponders, anything you might need for a track day or wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing, check those guys out and tell them Slip Angle sent you. With that said, let's roll the tape. Welcome everybody to Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot and today I'm still at Buttonwillow Raceway Park for Super Lap Battle. Today is day two and we're sitting in the cafe with uh, our good friend Mike Kang. What's going on Mike? Hey, how are you doing? Doing uh, great, man. Awesome weather here. Probably the best weather I've seen in every Super Lap I've ever been to. Yeah, it's nice and cool and right now there's actually like only like a four to five mile an hour breeze. It's, you know, a lot of times it's real windy. So I think that's uh, that's helping a lot of the cars out there too. Absolutely. Uh, this is excuse me, record breaking weather. Yeah. And uh, I think in that last set of sessions, we're going to see a couple more times go down. Yeah. You know, we were just over talking to Emilio Cervantes from 949, um, who's been on the show before. He ran a 145.1 today and like a 300 horsepower Miata, which is blazing fast. It's probably, aside from some of like the like radicals and stuff, that's probably the fastest like a low horsepower car has ever gone around this circuit. So really, really cool to see. We also have um, um, the guys from RS Motors, Andy Smedgard, 
Uh, just went faster than any Evo has gone before. They did, I think, a 140.5 earlier yeah. today. Well, I'm curious to see that next session. They're going to be going out in about another half hour or so. Yep. Just got a fresh set of Hoosiers. Yeah. They actually, it's funny. They, they were on Facebook Live and um, people were asking like, hey, man, like, do you need some money for tires? And they ended up, people were donating money, just PayPaling money to them through Facebook Live to get those tires because everybody is rooting for them. That um, is awesome. I mean, I want to see that time keep dropping. Yeah. You got one more session to do it. The ambient air is cooling down. Not very much wind, like you said, but the surface is still warm. Yeah. Uh, this is perfect. Yeah. Let's, ma let's hope he does it. So I was up late last night with, uh, with James Houghton. You know, those guys from K-Tune, they rebuilt a motor. Not rebuilt, they built a motor last night. So Eric Levine uh, builds those motors for him, the K-Series, and I think he got done around like lunch today. Worked nonstop through the night rebuilding this thing. Uh, same thing the guys from Professional Awesome have been rebuilding, uh, you know, the motor that's in that car. Actually, I think they blew the motor first lap out yesterday. Yeah, they never got a time down. Uh, they sourced a new motor, dropped yep. it in. Uh, I have no idea what motor it is, but... Yeah, they, they put a 4G63 in. They had a 4G64 in it before. Um, so now I think they got a 4G63 from the guys at Road Race Engineering who were here. Um, Ronnie Solomon from RS Motors had a spare head. That's what, what I think was really cool about this event. When people have problems, even other competitors are willing to help. So Ronnie Solomon with RS Motors was actually over there helping the guys from Professional Awesome rebuild that motor until the wee hours of the morning. Absolutely. Last night. Uh, so. Lots of great sportsmanship here. A uh, couple other examples I've seen. So. Andy got his Hoosiers from, of all people, Jaeger Racing. Yep. Um, Mark Jaeger had that last set of Hoosiers that he needed. Uh, it might be something that's going to bump Mark down position-wise, but we all want to see that time go down. Even in Enthusiast class, uh, Efren Flores went faster on tires, borrowed from that's another a Fiesta, Fiesta, Fiesta. right? Yeah. 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 He's in a Fiesta ST. Julio is also in a Fiesta ST, and Julio blew his transmission earlier. Let Efren borrow his tires and boom, Efren goes faster. I mean, that is sportsmanship. Yeah. That's what this is all about. Yeah. And even like Will uh, Young, James Houghton was having some issues with his car after they got it back together and they had to get a couple sensors. So Will uh, Young blew his motor up today, um, who Will was, I recorded with Will yesterday. So that show is already out there in the internet. Um, so people can go and listen to that. But he had some sensors and he was like, yeah, man, sure. Like take them, use them. So, cause he wants him to, to go out and see what the full potential really is. So, Absolutely. And those and guys are competing in the same class, just like Jaeger, uh, which by the way, Jaeger, they built a new motor last night as well, man. Yeah. I think they pulled in what, around like 10, 30, 11 AM today. Yep. Went out for that first session. Didn't quite work, but uh, I want to see him go out again. Yeah. So even uh, I think um, like the spoon spoon team um, with die driving, I think something happened in the transmission in that car yesterday. They took it home back to L.A., fixed the trans and then they're back again today. So yeah, ton of work being done overnight. Yeah. So, and Modi from Blackbird Fabworks was having issues. He fried some ECUs um, running the supercharger that it was running. They pulled the supercharger off and went back to just the NABP motors. So, yeah, I was walking around earlier looking at his engine bay. I see some. I see two intake pipes instead of one. I'm yeah. like, this is a Miata. Yeah. It doesn't need two it doesn't filters. It doesn't need that much air. Yeah. He uh, taped off charge pipes, and sure enough, he's back to a naturally aspirated motor, and he's still running a 158. I yeah. mean, that last session, back-to-back, -back, 158, what, seven laps in a row? That's yep. impressive. Yeah. And that car, that car, Modi has done so much aero work to that thing. Uh, the front of it's been lowered like four inches. They, like, chop and put different fenders on, lowered the front bumper, so, you know, you're not pushing as much air. Really, really cool stuff. Yeah. So. 
all about efficiency with that yeah. car. It's hard to believe it's only 120 horsepower. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Modi's been on the show before, but the car has been absolutely transformed just this season. So really cool to see. Now, you were out here competing in your BRZ, but you had a little bit of a rough streak yesterday. Uh, you want to tell us about that? That was, uh, it was kind of expected, kind of unexpected. So in my particular BRZ, I've noticed the transmission was always a little bit notchy. It didn't quite feel right. I've, dr I've driven a lot of these cars and I have a good feel for what's normal and what isn't. Never felt right from day one. I had some early warning signs, but I didn't think it would progress this quickly. Great example is when I drove to Road Atlanta this May, I got there during the drive out there. I mean, we we're doing 12, 14 hours a day on the freeway. We felt the transmission just getting worse and worse, notchier, getting in and out of gear, especially in parking lots. I mean, we would have trouble getting in gear. Huh. Went out there, ran the first day, and uh, our friends at Zen Motorsports uh, fortunately squeezed us in for a last-minute fluid change. And when they're draining the fluid, they said, dude, like, this oil is as thin as water and it's coming out gray. Really? And after we changed the fluid, it felt a little better, but... Every time since, I've been paying attention to the fluid coming out, and it's always gray. Gear oil shouldn't be gray. So yesterday, I'm running the car, did a couple laps in the practice session, tried to dial the car in, because I did make a couple changes that I'll go over later. And that first session, I, I get my three hot laps in, feel decent about the setup, wanting to make a couple more changes that'll help me get in a little more efficiency. And I'm on my cool down lap, going into the sweeper, slow down, I got a downshift, and I'm in sixth gear, cooling the car. I can't get out of gear. I'm like, oh crap. This is not good. Look down, <laughs> I'm, I'm still doing about 50 miles an hour. Look behind me, a couple cars also coming. This is really not good. I can go into neutral, try to coast off, but I'm gonna block somebody's lap, not cool. Try to get into gear a couple more times, wouldn't go into fifth, wouldn't go into fourth. Clutch in, clutch out, try again, still didn't work. At that point, I mean, it's a judgment call. Going back to the sportsmanship thing, I force it into fourth gear. I get a little bit of a grind, but I'm at least able to get off the track. But get now, out I hear, way. Yeah. now I hear a whining. Now the throwout bearing goes out commonly on the FRS, BRZ, and 86. It's a known problem, small bearing from the factory. So I figured, okay, my throwout went. Travis over from Snail Performance uh, was gracious enough to help me do this swap at the track. So I call every parts store in the area. They don't have a bearing. Closest Subaru dealership did. So I, I drive over there. He's pulling the transmission. I get back. He puts it back in. We throw everything together. I mean, he did this in record time, two and a half hours maybe. Wow. I really would have only missed one session. We start the car up, put the car in the neutral, let the clutch out. Wine's still there. Hmm. So at that point, we figured it's the one of the bearings on the, the input, input shaft. Output, yeah. We're having trouble getting into gear and it comes and goes depending on if we just clutch in, clutch out, try again. So I decided to call it a day. Okay. A couple guys told me we can go out, run it, let the trans grenade, but at least I'll get some more laps and a shot at a faster time. Right. Unfortunately, I don't have the budget for that. I'm, yeah. I'm like you. It's, I mean, we're all <laughs> grassroots here. So I want to save that transmission so I can just rebuild it, get it working again and keep driving. Yeah. So now you are actually one of the first people to really start doing development work on the FRS BRZ86 
platform back in 2012 when the car came out. And actually, you're one of the reasons why I decided to give the platform a chance. You know, because your background, you were, well, I guess you had your, your MR2 for a while, but then you were really big in S2000s for a long time. Yeah, I had an MR2. I never tracked that car. Um, a little bit interesting because I had uh, three SGE beams, red top swapped into the MR2, which was originally a turbo chassis of all things. Oh, really? Um, so it caught a lot of people off guard, but this was before I started even driving. It was just more theoretically. You do all the research on the internet, you figure out, or you at least think you know what you want, had that. But the S2000 was where I really started tracking. I used to canyon a lot leave the traction control on because I had a 2008. I see the light blinking all the time, but I didn't really feel it. Yeah. Figured one day I'd go to the track. You have you have one of the rare unicorn Grand Prix white CRs. Yes, Like an I 08 do. CR, like and super, super rare. I got my use out of that car. Yeah. Still have it. I At this point, I think I've permanently retired it from the track because I'm having old car problems. Okay. 140,000 miles on the chassis. All the rubber bushings are torn or worn out. Everything's dried. And I want to turn it into a restoration project now. So I'll probably return everything to stock or something that's very easily reversible. But again, that, that's a lot of time and a lot of parts that I got to source. Yeah. Another story for another day. Before I even <laughs> like knew you like personally, uh, I used to see you post on S2KI because you were coming to the track a lot and you're doing a lot of different tire testing, mostly yeah. street tires. Um, but, you know, being able to kind of see you come out, you knew the tracks really well. And the car, for the most part, you kind of left the way that it was. I think you added some like some lower ball joints and stuff on the CR and tweaked yeah. a few small things. But for I, the most part, it was a stock CR. I did offset lower ball joints to get the alignment that I needed. Yep. Since I was on stock suspension, stock ride height, you can't get a proper track alignment, unfortunately. So I did that. It went to square wheels and tires. So same size front and rear. But that was it. Uh, beyond that, it was just brake pads, maintenance refresh everything as needed and try different tires. Yeah. So I started with S2K challenge, uh, started with RS3s. They wore down really fast, tried a second set. Second time around, I'm like, oh my gosh, this car, this t these tires are so good. And then that's when I first learned the effect of heat cycling on mm -hmm. tires. You read about it, but until you experience it yourself by using the same tire, going to the same tire again, experiencing the change in grip just from going to a fresh tire, you don't really understand it. Right. After that, uh, I tried a bunch of different tires, AD08R, RE11. Uh, this was even before the RE11A was out. Also tried NTO1s. The Maxxis RC1 was about to come out at that time. Uh, so it was interesting comparing these tires back to back, seeing the different characteristics, both on track and on the street, because for me, that was a double duty car. I drove mm -hmm. it every day in addition to tracking it. And on top of that, because we have such great access to the tracks in California, I can go to the track once every other weekend and really get a lot of time on these tires, but do it quickly enough where everything is applicable. I can directly compare tires that are competing on the market at any given point. Right. It's not one set a year or two sets a year of subjective feedback. It's, I was literally getting a new set of tires every six to eight weeks at the time. Yeah, that's got to be a, a significant portion of the tracking budget at that point. Well, that it's just brake pads it, it, and tires were my entire budget. That yeah. and entry fees and 
I, my big reason for that is my first track day. Um, I came, I had the usual newbie excuses. Oh, everybody else has more mods. Everybody else yeah. is doing that something to their car. Overs. That's why he's faster than yeah. I am. And then I, I had a veteran drive my car. Uh, Nam Yoon, he'd been driving for a couple of years at the time. Goes out and just busts out a 205 without even trying. And my mind was blown. That's at here the time. at Bunwell, right? At, here yeah. at Bunwell, yeah. even before the repave that we have now. And that's when I decided, okay, I got to figure out what I'm doing before I do anything to the car. The car is the baseline. I even bought the CR because I didn't know anything about modifying cars at the time. I figured Honda did the aero work for me. They did the suspension work for me. I'm going to leave it alone. Learn to drive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the proper approach to have and one that we try and push on people just through the show. You know, like everyone asks, oh, you know, my car's not ready. I'm like, dude, just go like you want to do your first track day, go rent a Corolla and just bring it to the track and like just get out there. Don't keep making up all these excuses on why you can't take your car to the track. Absolutely. So, and that's one of the challenges I have now. Um, I'm one of the administrators for 86 Cup. Mm -hmm. And as, you, as you've seen, we have a pretty solid turnout. I mean, seeing 20 to 40 cars, all of the same make and model it yeah. isn't uncommon for us. And that's what we've really been pushing. Run the stock class, run the stock car, learn to drive because there are 10 other drivers all running an identical car to you, showing you what can be done. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I think the stock class approach has been really successful because people get a gauge for where they actually fall versus where they think they should. Right. And as they speed up and they start getting toward the front of that class, they start adding a couple more parts to the car. Because after you've done 10, 15, 20 track days, you have an idea of what you want to change about the car and how you want to change it. And not only does that develop a better driver, I think it's resulted in better modified cars. Right. You see the cars coming out to speed ventures, and for the most part, at an 86 Cup event, you don't see these 86s going down. Uh, just like me, I mean, you had this car pretty early on, and a lot of those early cars had a ton of problems. Yeah. I remember, actually, I called you on Facebook Messenger, like, when my car actually had that catastrophic issue down at Roebling Road. You know, and I still hadn't met you in person, but like we talked on Facebook a lot, yeah. you know, so you were like the first person that I, I called, like even before I called my wife, you know, I was like, oh, Mike, like the motor's done. Like I was out running and it just went away. Yeah, I remember the early years, the, the early cars had a yeah. catastrophic motor failure yeah. problem, which has been addressed now. Fortunately, uh, a lot of the guys that run 86 Cup, I mean, some of these guys have been running since the beginning. They were brand new, fresh to tracking in 2012, 2013. 13, all have moved on to newer cars. You look at the S2000 guys, usually they're on their first car with the 86s. They've all moved on to a fresher car, 15, right. 16, and especially with the 2017 having a performance package, you're seeing a lot of guys make a jump, uh, not only for the value that the performance package offers with Brembo's from the factory, but just all the little updates that Toyota and Subaru have made to the car. Um, overall, yeah. just making it more reliable, more sustainable, and all the old failures just aren't there anymore. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that when the car first came out, I was super stoked on it and then obviously had my engine problems and like got kind of like, I don't know, a bad taste in my mouth from it because it was a, a brand new car, which at the time I was like 24, you know, driving a $25,000 car. I was like, man, like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, like I could have bought a $10,000 S2000, but now the cars are getting to be so much more affordable and people like, um, you know, like you and others have kind of started figuring out like the proper recipe and what you need 
to do to the cars to make them reliable, which it sounds like now the newer cars really aren't having that many issues. Yeah, all the issues that you had with your car, coil pack failures, DI heel failures, uh, are gone. I mean, they've incremented the part many, many times. They've done the research. They've completely changed the tunes. Even if you look at the calibration of the 2017 versus the original 2013, everything is different. The car even makes more power. It has better throttle response. It's more forgiving when it comes to the California 91 that we have. Yeah. And what's even cooler is seeing the development of the platform. Um, it's one of the more exciting platforms that have come onto the market. So the aftermarket's really embraced it. And five years ago, when the car is fresh, people were getting frustrated. Boltons weren't really giving them the gains that they wanted. Coilovers weren't performing the way they want. Now the options are different. Some of the options are a little bit pricier than others, but you see these cars going on track and just progressively getting faster and faster and faster, along with the drivers that get that's getting better. Yeah. And I think at some point, the development of this platform might rival that of the S2000. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at the S2000, the S2000 has been out for 17, 18 years now, and there's still constant development going on. There is. So and for the FRS and BRZ to be so far along, just within you know a five-year span, it's amazing. Like, give it another 12 years to rival that of the S2000, and no telling what it's going to look like. Yeah. And owning both, I mean, it's, I, I have a good feel for both cars. Uh, one of the reasons I like tracking the BRZ is one, it's comfortable, it's got modern technology, but I can fit a lot more into it. Yeah. I can come to the track with a second set of wheels and tires. I don't have to worry as much about going off or popping a tire, bending a wheel, or even cording a tire, making it home. I can bring all of that with me, and it's not a ton of things that you really have to bring. It's a tool bag, you bring your helmet, maybe a change of clothes if you're staying out here, extra set of tires, and you're good yeah. to go. Yeah. In addition, even compared to the S2000, the car's just more sustainable in general. You get better fuel economy if you're driving the car around, but the cool part is, you have a car that's lighter than an S2000, a little bit less power, mm -hmm. but it's got bigger brakes. Even yeah. the consumables on this car last longer than on an S2000. Yeah, you know, I remember, I thought my S2000 brakes were really good, like just stock brakes on the S2000, I thought they were pretty good. And then I got my FRS without the performance pack, you know, just the, the regular base four pot brakes and was surprised, that thing stops so, so well. And it's so stable at high speeds without, even without any aero mods. Yeah. That's one of the big aerodynamic advantages you have with a modern car. Auto Club Speedway is a great example of this huge straight followed by banking. And the S2000 has 40 more horsepower and I'm going just as fast around that banking in an FRS or BRZ as I do in an S2000, even with that power deficit. That only happens with aerodynamic advantage. Yeah. You know, for a while, I kind of got away from recommending the FRS and BRZ to people just because of my experience. But it sounds like now it's actually a pretty logical choice now. It is. Um, I think it makes a little bit more sense to me for a mixed duty car than a ND Miata. Mm -hmm. uh, the Miata definitely has its own strengths. It's a little bit more expensive, unfortunately, but you can't do anything to take away from how light that car is. Right. Yeah, when I mean, you're driving super it, light. that response, the cornering grip that it has because it's 600 pounds lighter than a BRZ, there's nothing you can do on a BRZ to ever make it that light. But to track an ND Miata, well, it takes a little bit more prep. I mean, I, I'd be a bit uncomfortable going on track without a roll bar, which right. adds weight to the car. You have a lot of body roll, which to me is a great feature in feeling the car, but on track, it might be a little bit frustrating. Hindrance, yeah. And you're, 
the, you're still in a convertible. You get a lot more noise and even with the lower output and what should be faster acceleration, you're still getting to be frustrated coming out of a corner when you got to shift more and that Mustang is blowing by you. Right. You know, one thing I was really surprised about when I had my FRS um, was how much fuel the thing burned. I guess a wide open throttle, it's just running like both sets of injectors per cylinder, just like wide open. So I got worse fuel economy in my FRS than I did on, at least on track, than I did in my uh, S2000. I don't know if that was just like the original tunes. No, that's and totally calibrations. normal. So okay. what we figured out over time is when the car was new, uh, in my S2000, I was doing about six and a half, seven miles per gallon on track. I was doing half of that in the FRS. Yeah. I would go do a session and burn through half a tank of gas. It took a long time, but as the ECU software has been improving and getting features, we've, we've also figured out the car's dumping fuel at high RPM to save the catalytic converters. Ah, that makes sense. Nowadays, with an aftermarket tune on the car, your fuel economy's about seven, seven and a half, okay. where it should be. Okay. All of these are things that just developed over you the just, past couple of years, like yeah. while you just got out have of learned it, over time, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Everything on the car has improved. So my car was a great example. Um, for most of the year until Super Lab Battle, I ran it naturally aspirated. And with just a header and a tune, I'm making about AP1 S2000 horsepower. Really? Like 190-ish? Uh, I was about 195 to the wheels. Oh, wow. Okay. And if I run E85, then I can get about 205 to the wheels. And if you're drag racing from a roll, it's about neck and neck with a untuned AP2. Okay. Now, the challenge with the car is it doesn't respond to bigger tires the way an S2000 does. You put 225 square on an S2000 versus 235 or 245 or even 255, which is common, the bigger tires are always faster. Right. Not the case with the FRS or BRZ. Bigger tires don't always pay off. And even to this day, I'm still faster on a narrower tire at almost every track. Huh, okay. The only exceptions are if you have a track where it's all about cornering speed. Streets of Willow, for example, you got two straights and the rest of the time you're cornering. I'm faster on the wider tire, but everywhere else, I just haven't been able to find that time. Okay. Even with the increased cornering speed, for whatever reason, I- Just doesn't do it. I just huh. lose too much speed on I the remember, straight. I remember, you know, when we were talking back in like 2012, before I even bought my car, it came up that the FRS and BRZ just, they use the tires much more efficiently than like an S2000 does. They do, and it's strange because it has a McPherson strut in the front, which is theoretically not supposed to be as good as a double wishbone. And for the most part, I would agree, it's, they use it for packaging with that boxer engine. But you mentioned something that proves that point. It's anecdotal, but validation. The car breaks absurdly well. Right. You take an S2000, you figure out where your braking point is for a given tire. They have similar weight, similar velocity going into that corner. You can take 25% of that away with the FRS, still make it. Yeah. Even if you take away the driver factor, you sit on ABS with both cars. The FRS just scrubs the speed faster, even though it's using a narrower tire. Yeah. You know, I, I got so confident in the brakes that I would... I started braking like at the last moment completely possible and ended up sometimes transitioning so quick that I would actually hit ice mode in the car where the, the computer essentially takes over the brake pedal because I was that confident in the factory brakes. Yeah. So not sure if that's still an issue with the platform. It but. is, but we figured out what causes it and how to avoid it. So with the modern car, you have a lot of electronic nannies that are 
ultimately trying to protect you, but might be counterproductive on track. And what we figured out is if you transition from throttle to brake too quickly, too abruptly, the ice mode kicks in. So it, it's something that you have to adapt to or accommodate as a driver. You transition a little bit slower. Don't go straight from throttle to gas. Right. Make it smooth. You just don't want to be fast doing it. You don't want to waste time. But don't slam on the brake pedal like you're panic braking on the right. street to then the avoid ECU someone. Or the computer thinks that oh they're trying to go into a panic stop. Exactly, and that's when the computer takes over. You lose. 75% of your braking and you end up flying off track. Right. Uh, it took us a while to figure out how to replicate it, but now we tell everybody how to avoid it and it really hasn't been an issue. Uh, the other way to avoid it if you have somebody who's prepping a full race car or is comfortable is you can pull the ABS ECU uh, fuse and you can also eliminate ice mode but again if you don't have abs you right. have a pretty good chance of locking up your tires right. with this car now does does the frs and brz does it change the brake bias when you pull the abs fuse front and rear does it maintain the same standard you know brake bias so this part's a little interesting going back to the whole modern car thing it has electronic brake force distribution so when you have all your electronics on the EBD ECU is determining what it can do to maximize your deceleration. So it individually pulses each caliper in each corner at a different force based on the amount of grip that you have to maximize your braking performance. So the bias can shift left and right, or it can also shift back and forth. Okay. If you pull the ABS fuse, you lose that portion of it and you get mechanical braking, which gives you more predictable brakes, but it also allows you the possibility of a lockup. Now, you've done some research on the internet and you've heard of the pedal dance. Yeah, oh yeah, I think you're the first one that brought that to the internet actually. So the pedal dance, not only eliminates your traction control, it also eliminates your electronic brake force distribution. Oh, really? And the electronic diff. So okay. there are times where the ECU will grab just the rear brake to assist the torsion diff. And that's what that flashing light is, right? Exactly. You yeah. try to trail brake into a corner, the EBD is activating to straighten your car out, so you push instead of rotate. And it's counterproductive if you're trying to trail brake. You do the pedal dance or you pull the ABS ECU, you get 100% mechanical braking. It's one-to-one -one braking force with your pedal and what you're getting versus uh, maybe a 90, 85% correlation with the electronic aids on, but it makes the whole car more predictable. The electronic diff portion, we discovered on accident. With the cars that are running very high spring rate, low droop travel dampers at Big Willow, we discovered as you're going over the bumps in turn eight, really bumpy, doing 120 plus, when you lift that inner rear wheel with a torsion, the car thinks that you need assist on that torsion hmm. and it would grab just one rear brake. And again, modern car, out of that EC, we can get a ton of data. This was discovered using a AIM Solo DL which records individual wheel speeds on this car. Yeah. Very cool for yeah, a budget really cool. car. I, I had mine set up that way. And we, we discovered it would only grab one corner and it would really scare the driver. It, it'll freak you out if one, one corner of your car breaks suddenly, unexpectedly when you're on throttle at 120 plus. Yeah. This only happened without the pedal dance. If you hold the traction control off button for five seconds, it still gives you no traction control, no stability control, but the EBD and the electronic diff assist were active. You do the pedal dance, it goes away, the car becomes completely predictable, it doesn't try to kill you at Big Willow. Fringe case, but that's how we discovered it. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of electronics that we're still trying to figure out on this car. Yeah. So essentially, uh, the way I would sum it up is you have ABS, which is traction control under braking, and you have stability control under braking, which is electronic brake distribution. Um, you disable it, that's when you're really controlling the car. For most people, I recommend you keep your ABS on for obvious reasons. There's no point in learning the threshold brake and risking right. flat spotting your tire. <laughs> right. It's better to just feel the ABS and uh, recognize that it's happening and learn the threshold brake that way with a much bigger safety margin. Yeah. Now, isn't for the pedal dance, there's a, a module now that you can buy that somebody makes, correct? There is. Uh, okay. There's a guy named Josh Brown on the East Coast, has a company named Beasttronics. You can go on beasttronics.com. He sells a module where you plug it in and he can pre-program it for you to automatically do the pedal dance for you every so time. as soon as you turn the car on. Exactly. Okay. Or you can have it pedal dance automatically for you with the press of a button. And his module is cool in that the, it can activate the pedal dance anytime you want, even oh, if really? you're driving, even if the car is cold. Okay. Because one of the catches of the pedal dance yeah, is the be car warm. had to be warm. Yeah, it had to be fully warm. Yeah, which was always annoying if like, you got busy talking to somebody and you forgot to start the car up before your session to let it warm up. Exactly. You know, you're like, ah, oh, crap. And then you're like sitting on pit lane, like, come on, come on, come on. And you got to shut the car off while you're like sitting in pre-grid and everything. So that's, so, that's really good to hear. Yeah, it, it goes both ways. A lot of the guys have bought his module and it works great, but it also encourages good best practices because you have to warm up your car. A lot of the guys that track this car now have gotten in the habit of starting the car 10, 15 minutes before their session. Let every warm up, get her to temp before they go out on track so they yeah. don't have cold engine, cold oil, and just beat on it, get extra wear and tear. And I think part of that is what's helping the sustainability of the platform. Yeah. Now tell us a little bit about 8.6 Cup. Like where did that idea come from and how long have you guys been around for? So when I started driving, I ran or I ran in S2K Challenge. Uh, after a couple years, I ended up becoming one of the series administrators. Uh, we It was a challenge figuring out how to clash the cars, how to update the rules, clash all the cars. Uh, made for some great debates uh, because different owners had different setups. And yep. we're trying to figure out how do we make the rules fair and closed loopholes. So when this platform came out, it made sense. Why it's don't we start do something from scratch. Yeah. similar with this new platform and try to grow a solid track audience? So we follow the same philosophy, assign points to different modifications you have and class people by how many points you have so that we can generate parity between different levels of modification. So street class is a great example. Uh, we have four classes. We have stock, street, modified, and unlimited. Street is the most popular class where you could have a very basic level of bolt-ons. Now, the way we design the rules is there's three major things you can do to the car. Big power adders, such as forced induction. Mm -hmm. Big grip adders, coilovers, tires. tires yeah. Or you can have aerodynamic grip. You can only, you only have enough point allowance in street class to do one of the three. There is no viable way to do all three. Okay. And we've assigned points to these modifications where no matter which of the three you do, your lap times are actually pretty almost similar. identical if okay. you have a equally talented driver. Modified class allows you two of the three mods. Unlimited lets it's you do all, all three. three and you can go all out. Okay. Now, we've had some cool builds evolve over the years. Generally, everybody starts in stock or street class because your average guy on the street, if he already has coilovers, wheels, tires, obviously he can't compete fairly in stock class. So he, he's going to probably be in street. 
Yeah. They come out, they get a taste of the track, they figure out the direction they want to go, they add more parts. Uh, sometimes they go forced induction, sometimes they add a wing. So you see these cars, uh, well-prepped street driving, which is cool. Uh, but lately we've been getting some insane 86 Cup builds. Uh, two NorCal guys, Jeffrey Wanlu and Garland Wong, bought the Synergy V8. Wow. So this is a V8 that June Auto in Japan prototyped with Synergy. And now we have two of them running in the series. Three liter V8, 11,000 RPM, yeah. 500 horsepower. Yeah. Um, plug and play setup, very expensive to do, but just hearing an engine doing 11,000 RPM at the track it's gonna is sound nuts. a whole different level yeah. of nuts on track. And we love seeing the look on some of these cars' faces. I mean, you get Mustang, vet owners. <laughs> who have a FRS motor by them on track. And they're confused because they don't hear a blow-off, they don't hear any whining or whistling. There's no forced induction. They just hear high-pitched whine. <laughs> yeah, man. So, I mean, for 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 8.6 Cup, I've I've thought it's been really cool. Like, when I work Speed Adventures events, you guys run some of the, uh, the 8.6 Cup at Speed Adventures events. But I'll see, like, an older gentleman sometimes or an older, like, woman. Sometimes they'll show up. With an 8.6, like they're like retirement age and they bought an 8.6 and they're and they're coming out and competing with you guys in stock class, you know, and then moving up. It's actually it's actually one of the more unique things that I've noticed with 8.6 Cup because I don't see that with any of the other series. Yeah, with the demographic of the buyers of the car, we we thought initially, I mean, it would be young working professionals, guys who are buying their first new car, first yeah. rear wheel drive car. And it turns out you, you do get these people that are more established, more experienced. Some of them are retirement age. And this is something they always wanted to do. They wanted to go racing or tracking. And they figured out, well, that Porsche that they dreamed about wasn't quite affordable, but hey, this car has a reputation for being a budget Cayman. It really does handle similar to a Cayman. And they buy the car, they come out, they discover there's a solid group of guys going back to the sportsmanship from earlier. Everybody's supporting each other, riding with each other, helping each other go faster. And they're able to grow a skill set that they never thought they would have the opportunity to learn. And they keep coming out and we keep seeing them. Everybody's encouraging each other and you get this really wide demographic. Yeah. Uh, you see Susan Hoffnagel, like you mentioned. Yep. Uh, she started with the stock car, ran stock class, been a couple years and sure enough now, I mean, she has a Jackson Racing Supercharger on her car, Brembo brakes. Uh, I think she's gonna put on some coilovers next. Okay. She's got good wheels and tires. I mean, her car's developing into a really potent machine. And at the same time, this is a car that she street drives and it's built to be 100% sustainable. Yeah. Her car's carb legal, even with that supercharger. She can drive it every day and not have worry about it getting pulled over. It's California legal. She can smog it all day. And one of the interesting things that I've kind of found um, with 8.6 Cup, too, is the, the community. Community seems really strong. And one of the other things that I think is real cool, you guys went to some of your, your sponsors, um, 949 Racing and GT Radio, and you guys actually offered essentially track loaner tires of somebody from stock class who wants to try out you know, a different tire. 
they have 9496ULs, 17 by 8s with 225 GT radials that people can try out. That's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, uh, especially for the new guys who don't know what to do on their first track day. They go on the internet, they see a lot of conflicting information. And those guys can come out, use a loaner set of tires provided by our sponsors, and see what it's like to drive on a proper EHP tire. The GT radial tire, I think, is the perfect learning tire because it's not the stickiest tire on the market. It's not made to be the stickiest tire on the market. What it does do is it has a great life. Most of these guys running the tire are getting eight plus track days out of them, whereas if you're running a Hankook or Yokohama, Bridgestone, you might be getting three to five days out of them before they cord. Mm -hmm. Not only that, the GT radial is a lower grip compound on a racing carcass. You get a tire that's a little bit heavier, but the real gain you get is durability and feedback. The sidewall on that tire is as stiff as what you would see on a normal race tire. So it allows the drivers a great opportunity to feel the benefits of having the stiff chassis in the FRS and feel what the car is doing and with proper guidance from the veterans. I mean, they pick up pace very quickly. Uh, GT Radio has been really generous with a contingency program. So any participant who comes out, runs the GT Radio, got to purchase their first set, obviously, run the GT Radio stickers, um, you collect points throughout the year and you get free tires. It reduces the cost of tracking because, I mean, this is not the cheapest hobby in the world, uh, but it helps out quite a bit. 949 Racing stepped in with their 6UL. Uh, they had a FRS-specific fitment. So they loaned us three sets of wheels and tires for the year. It gives the new guys a chance to try something that they wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. Mm -hmm. The best part about this is even with the 17 performance package offering Brembo brakes, 949 Racing offers a 17 by 9 wheel that clears those brakes. So we got an additional set of oh, okay. wheels and tires from GT Radial and 949 Racing just for the guys that run the Brembo brakes so because the original 17 by 8 didn't. Okay. So they have equal opportunity to try it. Okay. Um, so the best part about this is because it reduces everybody's cost, we, we kind of almost have a spec tire. It's not a mandatory spec tire, but because we take the tire out of the equation by having everybody run the GT radial, you're really able to truly develop driver skill. Right. You get to directly compare with other drivers how you're doing on an equal footing, and you don't have to worry about consumables. Um, the GT radial has been great with the support that they're giving us, and they will be returning next year with a program that's even stronger. Okay. Um, so this year, every 10 points you collect in our series would award you a tire. Next year, the first 10 points are going to give you two tires. So even the guys who are not as fast, not as experienced, if they're coming out to every event, they're guaranteed to be taking home two tires at the end of the year just by participating wow. and run in the program. Okay. That's pretty awesome. It is, I believe, the strongest tire program any grassroots series in North America has. I mean, it's we're thankful for their support and... Uh, They'll be here next year. It's awesome. Yeah. No, I can't wait for next season. So I'd love to uh, find an FRS or BRZ to borrow and run a couple of events too. I think that'd be fun. We think you should do it. <laughs> if we find you the right car with the right tires and stickers, I mean, you could even collect contingency tires, even if you don't own the car. That'd be great. Uh, one of our participants, uh, they just got engaged. Chaz and Jackie were sharing one car. Mm -hmm. 
buying two spots at Speed Ventures, and they were both collecting contingencies. And now they have this pile of tires, <laughs> tires in, their in the garage <laughs> because they're they're winning more tires than they can ever use. Yeah, uh, it's awesome, and they love it because it is so inexpensive to run. Chaz used to have an STI bolted on running great times with it. He started driving Jackie's car when his car had issues here and there and uh, sold his STI. Now he owns a 17 BRZ. Great example of just how sustainable the platform is. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, I, I owned one of the cars before and now talking to you, I'm kind of reinterested in them again. So who knows, maybe we'll, uh, we'll see me in one. Listeners of the show probably know, like I say that about a lot of stuff, uh, but this one having owned one of those cars and kind of needing a dual purpose car, it's something that's definitely on the list if I, if I choose to step back in another car. Oh, looking forward to seeing you run with us. Yeah, man, it'd be uh, fun. You're quick. We got to light a fire under some of these guys. <laughs> yeah, <but> right. <laughs> um, I'm going to be moving up to unlimited class. Uh, our other street class front runner, Philip Crashen, will probably be taking a year off to build an unlimited class car. Oh, cool. So with there's a synergy motor. Maybe, uh, maybe not that much. <laughs> <laughs> he likes turbo, so who knows? Uh, but. It's going to leave a big opening in street class. A couple of stock class guys are moving up into street, but that also means stock class has a big opening because the current leaders are not going to be in the class anymore. Yeah. So every year there's more opportunity because people continue to want to develop their car. They continue to develop as a driver, but generally everybody moves up classes every couple of years. Yeah. No, I think it's really cool and it's a real like cool community that you guys have built. And it's kind of a unique approach to building a track community based around one platform. So, and, and really, like you were saying, it's, it's the first new platform that's been around that's kind of been really enticing to people to take to the track, you know, from vehicles that are, you know, currently out there. It is. I mean, it's affordable. If you want to go buy a Toyota Camry, for example, it's about the same price as the FRS, especially after you put a couple options or a couple packages on the car. Yeah. So you have this option. You can go buy a, a practical car or you can go buy a really sporty car that you can take to the track That's at still minimal practical. cost. Yeah. Still can go to Costco. If you have kids, well, if they're babies, they'll fit in the back. But you, I mean, that's why we get these guys out here. They're all making a compromise to drive a car that they truly enjoy instead of something that you just sit in traffic like, oh, okay, it's just another car. Yeah. So, well, Mike, we really appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find out more about H6 Cup and everything else that you do? Uh, H6 Cup, you can find at h6cup.us. Uh, as for me, I mean, anything motorsport related, I'll probably try to find my way into it at some point. Um, just find me on Facebook, message me on Instagram. Uh, easiest way to do it. Cool. Well, we appreciate it, Mike, and uh, we'll see you next season. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Thanks.